The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Well, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Uh, I am honored to have with me uh, John Gastel and Catherine Knobloch. They are the authors of Hope for Democracy, How Citizens Can Bring Reason Back into Politics. Uh, hi, John. Hi, Katie. How are you guys doing? Hi. We're doing great. <laughs> well, John, uh, we'll start with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to write this book? It was pulling together about 10 years of research that Katie and I had done on an election reform in Oregon, and we wanted to tell a, a bigger story in two senses. Uh, I was kind of motivated to tell the story of the people behind these reforms. We tend to write kind of dry, analytic, evaluative pieces, and this book talks about where the idea came from, who had it, what he did with it, you know, who were the graduate students in Oregon who championed the idea, and then the stories of the people who actually participated, and a couple of them get foregrounded. So you can kind of feel what it's like to be a part of this reform. And then the other story we really wanted to tell was to put it in a bigger context. That's where the title of the book comes from, is we want people to come away not just saying, oh, now I know about an election reform that happens to be in Oregon. Uh, instead, they come away saying, this is pretty strong evidence that these kinds of reforms really can work. I, I want to I see more of this and get people excited about it. And again, by telling those stories, maybe let people identify with someone and say, I think I can be like that philanthropist, or I can be like that grad student, or I can be like that citizen. So pulling those two stories together, personal stories and the bigger story of deliberative democracy, that's what motivated me. Okay. Uh, Katie, uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Sure. Um, I'm at Colorado State University. I'm an associate professor of communication studies, and I also work with the Center for Public Deliberation. Um, you know, for me, I've always been interested in the role that the citizen plays in politics and public life and really kind of trying to find more meaningful ways to involve them in decision making that empowers them and, you know, gives them actual voice in decision making. Um, and so the CIR was an opportunity to study it and to tell its story. Um, another thing that I think is hopefully central in the book is really the story of institutional change. You know, I think that we often are pessimistic. We feel alienated. It feels like politics is so big and we can't have any impact on it and the way that things are, the way that things will always be. And I think the CIR shows us that, you know, we really can make changes to the ways that our political structures work if we're motivated, if we're dedicated, um, you know, and if we, if we do the hard work, it's not easy, but I think just showing those stories of hope and possibility are really important when so many people feel um, shut out of the political process. Okay. Um, well, uh, John, why don't I start with you? Um, your book focuses on a very specific form of democracy. Um, 
it, you know, otherwise known as deliberative democracy. Can you describe it for us? Um, tell us a little bit about how it's different from other forms of democracy. As well. Absolutely. A, a simple way of distinguishing it is by comparing it to a couple other forms of democracy. So the classical form of democracy really is elite democracy. That is, uh, we have elections, we elect representatives, but really elites take care of things. We elect elites, they govern on our behalf, they run the media, they give us our ideas and our information, and that more or less works. That's, that's what the framers pretty much had in mind. Now, there's a more Jeffersonian notion that wound up getting a more full expression at the end of the last century, which is participatory democracy. That says... Okay, fine, we'll elect people, but we want more direct participation. Maybe we'll have initiatives and referenda, uh, but we also just want people getting engaged, out there protesting, mobilizing, voting. That's super important. Deliberative democracy comes in the wake of that, and it says, maybe it matters the quality of talk. It's great that we're having all this talk. It's great that everybody's participating. It's great that we're electing people to lead us. But we need deliberation from the top all the way to the bottom. We need everyday people thinking together, uh, listening to each other, and we need people in government to actually deliberate, not just enact policy or follow the dictates of their constituents. So throughout the whole system, we want to see more deliberation, um, and that's the idea, the, the sort of moral imperative of deliberative democracy. As researchers, we investigate, well, what prompts deliberation? What are the consequences of deliberation? What does deliberation look like? There's a ton of great questions we can investigate, all in the spirit of this idea of deliberative democracy. It's interesting because this, uh, just yesterday, I started a new book um, by somebody, um, by Carl Schmidt, The Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy, who is uh, not, a, not a big, uh, not a lot of people a big fan of him these days. I'm not sure that I am either. But what's interesting in his book was he talked about in the 20s, I think it was written in 23, that already at that time, democracy had moved away from the concept of parliament being a deliberative body to being about the mass movement about elections. Um, you kind of see, and you see that even more so today, obviously. It's interesting because... Um, he mentions it during that time, um, and is oftentimes it, well. He's turns into an opponent of democracy in the end. But obviously, you can you can kind of change that to um, the need, and even our deliberative bodies aren't necessarily quite as deliberative as they were intended to be. So, I got to um, say, you have an interesting bookshelf that you're pulling from. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I've been trying to read up on some of the radical democracy type theorists and kind of forced into uh, going back and understanding, hey, what about Carl Schmidt? What about um, uh, some of these other writers that I didn't necessarily reach out to uh, in the past? So, well, the book gets into a lot on the Citizens Initiative Review uh, specifically. And Obviously, it's going to help us to talk a lot about deliberative democracy, but why don't we talk a little bit about that? Katie, uh, can you, can you uh, help us explain its design and purpose? Sure. The Citizens Initiative Review was really designed to improve the quality of information available to voters for initiative and referenda elections. And for those who aren't as familiar with initiative and referenda, they're basically just laws that the public votes on. Um, so people 
tend to not have great information when they're voting on ballot measures. Um, usually most of the information that they get comes from advocates for the measure or against the measure, and we don't have our typical partisan cues that we often rely on when we're electing our representatives. So often people kind of just don't have a ton of information when they go to cast their vote on those things. Um, the CIR tries to give them good quality information to use when they're casting their ballots. So it brings together between 20 and 24 randomly selected citizens who are representative of the wider public in terms of things like age and race and education, also their place of residence. So in a state like Oregon, you know, are they from rural counties or are they from Portland? Um, and also voting history. So it's not just political junkies there. It's kind of people from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives. So it brings all of these diverse community members together and they spend three to five full days, I mean, these are eight-hour, very intense days, learning about the ballot measure. Um, they hear from advocates who are who put it on the ballot, they hear from its chief opponents, and they also tend to hear from more neutral background um, experts, and they help them understand why the initiative was proposed, why it's on the ballot, um, what's actually in the measure itself, and then what its potential impacts might be on individuals, on the economy, on other policies. So they spend almost a full work week learning about the measure. And then at the end of the week, they write a statement for the wider public to use that includes key facts about the measure. And so these are the things that they think it's most important for voters to know as they cast their ballots, um, as well as the strongest arguments in favor of and against it. So if somebody studied this measure for a full week, what would they say are the main reasons to vote for it? And what are the main reasons to vote against it? Um, that's going to go into the official, at least in Oregon, it goes into the official state voters guide and other places it's distributed through media outlets or other um, avenues. And then voters can use it when they're casting their ballots. Um, the goal really is to get information to allow people who don't have vested interests in it, you know, everyday citizens to really study the measure and then figure out what's in it, why it matters, and then pass that information along to give folks an opportunity to hear, you know, if if my neighbor really knew about this issue, what might they say about it rather than if this person who's getting paid to tell me about this measure, what are they going to say about it? So it's, it's an opportunity for the wider public to just get a little bit more reliable information, information that's constructed in a slightly more democratic way than the uh, majority of the information that they tend to get on those elections. So who, who selected the, the people that, that were part of the CIRs? Um, obviously, you talk a lot about the organization Healthy Democracy. I, I would mm -hmm. assume that they're kind of involved in it. Um, and obviously, I, I want to kind of get, get out there before we get too deep into the weeds that obviously there's two different elements to look at this. One is, is how did CIR, the CIR actually get implemented? The other is, hey, how can we actually utilize deliberative democracy in other avenues? So even if CIR specifically had some issues, obviously there might be, you know, if, if it's a simple, the goal is not to say, hey, CIR had a problem here or it succeeded here. It's to say, hey, how can we incorporate deliberative democracy uh, within our democratic, like within other places? How can we extend it? out. So to start with, in terms of CIR, like one of the concerns everybody would have, obviously, is who's chosen. How did they select those people? Was it the organization that was kind of spearheading this? They tend to work with a reputable polling firm in the area. So they'll send out 
thousands of letters to randomly selected citizens, you know, just kind of a huge mail dump to the wider electorate. And then in that letter, they ask folks to say whether they're available for the days that the CIR will be held. And then they ask them to fill out a quick demographic survey. Once they get those responses in, and the response rate, um, to be honest, tends to be pretty low. Um, once they get those responses in, they do, they kind of do um, stratified random sampling to get a to get folks who roughly match the electorate in terms of all of these different categories. Um, so it, it's kind of like anybody could potentially um, be selected. You know, in Oregon, they do it by, um, you have to be a citizen. In other places, it's open to folks who are not citizens or who aren't registered to vote. Um, just to kind of widen the widen the pool of candidates, potential candidates even more. Um, but they tend to work with um, reputable polling firms. And, and, you know, I think that there is some, one of the things that we've kind of noticed is that one of the places where it's not quite as representative is in terms of um, people's jobs. So we often have a lot of teachers, a lot of students, a lot of retired folks, some unemployed folks. Um, but there tends, it tends to, we tend to less often have people who are in our self-employed folks often. Um, it, it can be a lot harder for people who have kind of nine to five jobs to take that time off or who are hourly workers to take that time off. I would imagine it's difficult for parents to take that time off. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's actually a great example of the power of, of random selection is the very first CIR in 2010, something uh, Katie and I both noticed. We had the chance to watch that with some colleagues and uh, when they went around the table to introduce themselves, uh, one woman said, you know, it just occurred to me after last night, they had a, 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 arrived the night before at the hotel um, that we, where they would stay through the whole CIR. And she said, you know, last night uh, was the first night I have actually slept in a place where my children aren't it, since they were born, <laughs> since the first one was born. And there were 24 panelists sitting around that table. I swear to you, two other women said the exact same thing. And I thought, okay, random selection is working here. Um, you know, uh, they weren't saying, and it's the greatest vacation of my life, but they also weren't saying, you know, and I'm totally distraught. They were like, it's just interesting. I wanted to do this. And so this is taking me outside of my usual life. So yeah, I mean, obviously uh, their circumstances made it possible, but you do hear that at the CIR that a lot of people are saying, wow, this is something I never would have done on my own. This is so different from what I normally do. This invitation to deliberate in this way really struck me, and I'm excited to be here. Well, and as a parent with young kids, I can tell you that my wife and I will sometimes joke that uh, business trips are opportunities to catch up on sleep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I just want to note that there's something that we can borrow from juries that would kind of easily solve some of those problems, which is if you are selected, you're supposed to attend. Um, right now, those laws aren't in place around the Citizens Initiative Review, so people don't have to go if they're selected and their employers don't have to give them time off. Um, but that's something that could be codified, that if you're selected, your employer is required to give you the time off, and that would, you know, pretty easily solve some of these other problems. Sure, sure. Um, okay, so the CIR specifically is about writing out a citizen's response to something that is um, to one of the referendums that is being under, under uh, that is happening at the time. In 2010, you guys did two of them, so they, they can obviously have multiple. Oregon, uh, from what I can tell, has a lot of 
initiative referendums in that state. It's interesting because the way that that you guys lay out the book and you mentioned, especially in the introduction with the case of Seattle and the monorail project, it seems as if there's a little bit of hesitation about the reservations about initiative referendums because people don't have enough information. Uh, is, is that a fair statement for you or is, um, were you guys a little bit more uh, excited about that? Um, no, it's, it's absolutely fair to say that I have strong reservations about direct democracy expressed in that way. I, it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing. I, I think democracy needs lots of institutions and forms, uh, but it's going to be fraught, uh, partly for the same reason that elections are fraught in general. The influence of concentrated uh, capital uh, can make these things into, uh, you know, just an opportunity for very wealthy interests to potentially get laws passed. They don't always win, but they have the means to just keep trying. Um, and so, on the other hand, you know, it can be a way of, of counteracting an unresponsive legislature and so on. So it has its virtue, but there's no question that, that people are often voting uh, based on very poor information. Sometimes they're voting absolutely against their own interests. Um, sometimes that's for reasons that were by design by the people who proposed the laws, who made it strategically ambiguous what a yes vote meant, or put something else on the ballot that would cancel out only part of something else. There's all kinds of games that get played in direct democracy. And so we actually have a point of view that is shared by many legislators who view the direct uh, uh, legislation as kind of a threat to their power um, and can get behind something like the CIR to say, well, obviously I can't get rid of the initiative. Uh, you know, voters love it. Uh, but voters also think it needs reform. That's pretty common too. Um, and so, yeah, here comes the CIR. The Citizens Initiative Review might make those elections at least better, make people think a little bit more about the impact of this law potentially. And that can only help a legislator because it's important remember that at the time of divided legislature, one of the chambers was literally 50-50. They had an agreement to switch, you know, who the speaker would be. Um, it was also a recession. So they managed to pass a pilot law in 2009, but they couldn't fund it. They just said, well, we'll create this. And if there's, you know, independent funding out there, uh, that, that, then it will happen. And there was a such funding. And unfortunately, that aspect of the law in Oregon has not changed. I say unfortunately, because it means there's not necessarily a citizens initiative review when they have these ballot measures, which happen every other year in Oregon. So in 2018, there weren't any. This year, it would have been really interesting with COVID, right? They, they could have certainly done one. And actually, the state of Oregon right now is holding a kind of pilot citizens assembly, which is like a CIR, but more directly advisory to the legislature on the government's response to COVID-19. So there could have been a CIR using that same, you know, digital technology, but there's no funding for it. Massachusetts, fortunately, is considering a law to adopt the CIR with funding, and the European countries that are experimenting with it also assume that the government should pay for it. But the historical origin of the CIR in the midst of a recession kind of explains why when it was a pilot in 2009, then when it was made permanent in 2011, it did not come with funding because the government was cutting, not adding spending. It's interesting because you also talk in the book about how the CIR is oftentimes felt by some of the groups that propose initiatives like our, our Oregon as a referendum killer. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me because 
coming from a debate background and everything, it's a lot easier to explain why a policy doesn't work than why a policy should work. Do you find that the CIRs tend to be antagonistic towards the referendums or do you feel that they are more balanced? I mean, our research has shown that they're pretty split. You know, I, I think that there's kind of a common, you know, people, if they don't know about an initiative, will sometimes just vote no. And I think that that's legitimate. You know, why change the status quo if you're unsure? Sure. Um, I think that the CIR, it, it, if it's an initiative killer, it's in pointing out the unintended consequences of initiatives. You know, I think that the first CIR that happened was about mandatory minimum sentencing. It was a highly, highly popular initiative. It pulled at 66% in favor, and the CIR came out against it 21 to 3 because the law was terribly written. Um, and the more you kind of studied the measure, the more you realize it had unintended consequences. Um, but, you know, I think, I don't think that that's the case for all of the initiatives that it studies. You know, sometimes people put initiatives on the ballot for really good reasons. And even things like genetically modified foods or organisms, um, I think it was in 2014, we had three CIRs that were on those topics. The first was on um, the ability to grow genetically modified crops in this one valley in Oregon. And then the next two were on um, labeling GMO foods, both in Oregon and Colorado. Um, you know, for the banning the growth of genetically modified organisms, which seems like a kind of a radical proposition, um, they actually came out in favor of it because in that location, it made sense because of the wind and because of the effects on small formers. You know, it was like a really, really nuanced study of this measure. And it turned out that for this location, maybe not everywhere, this was the right choice. I, I got um, to throw in an example. This is literally getting in the weeds. Uh, <laughs> it, what Katie is saying is it, it gets into technical information and you think, oh, well, why have a random... Well, you know what? People can handle it. All they needed to understand about Jackson County, Oregon was, like Katie said, the winds are terrible. So these genetically modified seeds blow from farm A into farm B. Well, farm B is organic. They don't want those seeds. Now, once the, um, <laughs> the intellectual property of Monsanto gets onto farm B, farm B can't even cultivate its own uh, pick up its own seeds to replant because it would be, you know, using somebody else's property. So it makes it effectively impossible for farm B to, to run an economical farm. Now, again, that requires a little bit of patience. You got to sort of sit down and say, okay, now how exactly does it, who owns the seeds? How does that work? Yeah. And you, you sometimes, it takes a few days sometimes to really make sure you've got it nailed down because you've got to write a statement for all the voters of, in this case, Jackson County, Oregon, that they need to understand without five days to process all this. Well, I, they're pretty much up to the task. In fact, as the CIR has continued more and more, we hear citizens saying, uh, okay, okay, that, you know, that's, I, that sentence is fine, right? We'll put that in the key findings. But it makes sense to us, right? If you had read me that sentence on the first day, I'm not sure I would understand what exactly you mean. Let, let, let's give this another try, right? And they do actually spend time editing their own statements to make them more understandable. So that's, it's, it's funny, it's both an intellectual task of kind of distilling information, but it's also a communication challenge of now, how do I get this information back to the voters? Um, and an example uh, from, a, from a different election where the, there was a, a tax reform that was proposed gets into how tricky this is. And it is, is the CIR an initiative killer or not? In this case, um, 
our Oregon, the progressive organization Katie mentioned before, had a ballot measure that was going to get rid of a corporate loophole. No other state had. It was a crazy law they were getting rid of. Um, and the money was going to go to schools. That's what the campaign was. And they said, well, schools because people like schools. Well, that's not how budgets work. It's just not. The revenue is raised and it goes into the general budget and the legislature can do whatever it pleases. Even if in some symbolic sense it gave the tax savings um, or, yeah, to schools, well, it could take that money right back out of schools with the rest of the budget. It meant nothing. And in the course of things, citizens on the CIR wound up, frankly, feeling insulted that this argument kept being made over and over when they had people testifying that say, no, 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 that's just not true. That's not how the budget works. And so the very first key finding says, all right, let's get something out of the way. They say about schools, that's not true. That's not a thing. This is just getting rid of a corporate tax loophole and raising some irregular revenue. Well, they voted overwhelmingly in favor of removing that tax loophole. And if you read the full statement all the way through, you can kind of get the feel for that. But people who read that statement, again, we look at impact, not just on the panel, but obviously on the whole electorate when they do read it. People who read that statement latched onto that opening sentence and they, hey, I got lied to, right? They didn't have four days to kind of get over it. They were like, no, I, I think I'm going to vote against this. And that gets back to Katie's earlier point about kind of the burden on any proposal. The CIR sometimes isn't so much as an initiative killer as it is uh, something that raises doubts. And if I have doubts in my mind, I'm probably going to vote against something. That one particular case of that tax loophole is so interesting because the panel obviously came around to supporting it, but it raised doubts. And for the average voter, you know, they've only got a minute or two that they're going to think about it. That doubt was stronger than the balance of the vote. I forget what it was, like 19 to 4 in favor of actually passing this law. So it's, it's a statement that has content. And to my delight and surprise, voters seem more attached to the content than to any implicit recommendation in a vote tally of how the particular two dozen people happen to have ended up at the end of the week. Well, let's talk a little bit about the information that they have. Um, obviously, like a deliberative body of ordinary citizens are going to be dependent on the information that they're shown. Um, there were some problems, even in the CIRs, where you guys described where the advocates um, tried to manipulate the process in different ways, where they got upset. I, I think it was the mandatory minimum one that you guys spent a lot of time on where people got yeah. upset and they came in they're like, oh, I'm going to show you this extra video and I'm going to do this. Okay, so what efforts can be made to ensure that they're not provided with uh, flat out false information? For instance, here, let me take a, one further step. I can just imagine that as an institution evolves that a group that was brought in here could literally just stand up there and just flat out say lies. What what steps can be taken to make sure that that doesn't happen where the the people feel that they, they can't trust the information that they're being given? You know, it's interesting because one of the biggest safeguards is the process itself. Um, the designers of these deliberative bodies have put a ton of thought and effort and theory and time into designing really, really rigorous processes of fact-finding, vetting the information that they get, you know, really thinking through the implications of everything. Um, you know, so I, I agree that 
like almost every other thing that gets institutionalized, there's the possibility for corruption and co-optation. You know, if there's a system in place, there's going to be some people who are trying to find the loophole, who are trying to find a way to game the system, right? But the system can also get smarter and learn from its mistakes and build up safeguards. And that's really what the CIR is designed to do. So, you know, just the simple fact that both sets of advocates are there and they get to respond to the statements that one another makes. So they can challenge a statement that the other advocate makes and then the participants know, all right, these two claims are at odds with one another. And the, you know, they call it CIR 2.0 and the more recent version of the process, they actually are tasked with putting those claims against one another and really figuring out, all right, is one of these claims right and the other false? Or in a lot of cases, it's, they're both true. They're just more nuanced than they seem at the beginning. So the participants themselves actually spend a significant amount of their time wrestling with those competing claims and trying to parse them out. They also get the opportunity to ask questions of more neutral experts. You know, I, there's not anybody, nobody can be kind of totally neutral, but academic researchers, um, people who have appointed government positions, they have a bit more of an obligation to find out factual knowledge and to really kind of be objective in their, um, in the information that they provide than folks who get paid to advertise for or against a measure. So they get to ask those questions of people who have a, a bit more of an obligation to be neutral and fact-based. Um, but then it's also the participants themselves are incredibly smart at the end of the day. You know, they spend tons of time studying this measure so they can spot it. I mean, they know when they're being manipulated. They know when something feels outlandish or if, or if they're just kind of making a claim that's disconnected from the reality about which they've talked about. So it's it's kind of amazing to see the participants themselves do a lot of that work on their own. They, You know, they've studied, they've learned. And so if something smells fishy, they can identify it. So a couple things in the process I want to follow up on. One, the Q&A that, that Katie mentioned, that is so critical because I remember as an observer at the CIR, the experience of, you know, I know where I am politically. And so when I see the issue, I'm like, oh, I'm on this side, right? <laughs> well, often it's the other side that goes first. And I listen to their arguments and I think, yeah, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, no, they, they got a really <laughs> good point. Yeah, I, it takes me back to my debate days where I would sit there and panic while the other team made its case. I'd be like, yeah, no, that sounds like a really good idea. I, I don't want to have to argue against this. But then the questions start, right? Uh, and and that's great. And that usually, you know, oh, okay, I can, I can go back to my, you know, lefty liberal position on this issue now. I'm comforted, right? <laughs> but then over the course of days, you know, my lefty liberal position gets torn up. They both get torn up. And then the citizens are kind of rebuilding what they believe based on what's left. And you'll hear questions like this. Where is that in our binder? <laughs> you, you keep referring to that study. I, I'm sorry. I, I can't find that study. Did, did you give that to us? I remember one year they talked about how the cost savings of this law and a citizen said, yeah, no, the other side says for every dollar spent, we would save essentially a dollar and two cents. So it would like a 2% return. That doesn't sound very good. You said it was a dollar 75. You know, where is that? Where does that number come from? It didn't come from anywhere that we could tell. Right. And that didn't show up in the statement. One of the things I, I, I tell people when they see a CIR for the first time is, well, you know, buckle up because it's going to be a boring four or five days. <laughs> um, but also don't judge this process until we're in the home stretch. You know, because the, these examples I'm giving you, citizens might say something that in the end they decide isn't true. They say, oh, well, you know, I think the budget savings are going to be tremendous with this law. And you think, ah, they're wrong. Right? Well, the question is, is the statement wrong? 
Is what they end up with wrong? This thing about the budget and taxes that I alluded to before, they kept struggling with that. They were like, but if it goes to schools, didn't it go to schools? Well, yes, but, yes, but. And then even on, I think, the fourth day, somebody, one person kept getting it wrong. And I think in the end, she still didn't understand that. But it didn't matter because that point of view did not show up in the statement. It reminds me of going back to, the, I had the good fortune of serving on a jury once. I don't think they'll ever let me on again because I've written <laughs> about juries now and all that. But you never know. Police serve, you know, people can get on juries. But the one time I was on a jury, we had a holdout who said, oh, yeah, you know, I just, I think this guy's a check forger. He's guilty. He's got to be. I mean, you know, and we explained, no, no, no. Remember, he didn't fill out a check, right? He probably is a check forger, but the bank got so excited when he came back in, they didn't let him fill out a check. The judge was very clear to us what a check is. And she was like, yeah, but you know, he's a check forger. Let's, let's lock him up, right? And it took us two <laughs> days of going back and forth. And finally, you know, that she just, ah, fine, okay, we'll acquit him, right? So the point of deliberation isn't that it makes everyone into the best philosopher, the best social scientist, you know, the, the best DNA analyst. It's that there's a collective judgment. And that judgment can be judged on its own terms. In the case of the jury trial, right, was it guilty, not guilty? The judge thanked us afterwards. Thank you for paying attention to my instructions. I really appreciate that. And you could tell the bank tellers were like, God dang it. What a freaking laws. Um, and in the case of the CIR, though, you don't just say the law is guilty or not guilty. You actually give reasons. So the, the CIR actually has to meet a much higher standard, right? It actually can be judged based on the quality of those statements. And, and we give report card style grades. And I forget, Katie, what our kind of average is. But I think my feeling is kind of a B plus, A minus, right? They do a pretty good job. I would have, you know, maybe tweaked something here or there. But it's solid work. And for the average voter, you know, that's a huge upgrade from the base of, of claims and facts that they have in front of them when they vote if they don't have a CIR. So I think that grade is, is pretty decent. Well, and I also want to just acknowledge, you know, what the alternative is. Uh, one of the um, things that we kind of think about a lot is when we were testifying about the CIR and all of these questions, one of the representatives said, you know, I wish that I had a full week to study what I'm voting on. Um, so most of the decisions that are getting ma made by government officials, they, they aren't working with an extensive amount of time to really interrogate the ins and outs of all of the laws. They just kind of cast a ballot. And often, I think as we've seen recently, they're working with terribly biased information, you know, that's delivered to them by people with vested interests who really have a directive in mind. So it's obviously not perfect. I don't think any information system is going to be perfect. But one of the things that we like to think about when we're kind of evaluating the quality of the Citizens Initiative Review or deliberative processes in general is, is this an improvement on what we're working with before? And it's not to say that this is going to be the exact model that we use moving forward. But if it's better than the model that came before it, then we're making progress. Sure. Uh, I just finished uh, Samantha Powers' um, auto memoir, The uh, Education of an Idealist, and she quotes Obama a few times saying better is good, I think it is. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I can understand that. I do want to emphasize here that I, I do, I really do like the way that you guys have a lot of faith 
and hope in ordinary citizens. Here's a quote that I want to pull out. Uh, deliberative theory trusts in the untapped capabilities of the wider electorate. They know how to have difficult conversations even across party lines. And I think that gets back to exactly what you guys are talking about right now, their ability to have those type of difficult conversations and rise above partisanship. I, I remember in graduate school, a professor assigned a book by um, it was Thomas Sowell who explained the conservative philosophy uh, about you know how they think about human nature and basically just said, yeah, people are terrible. When we start from the assumption that people are terrible, you know, creating government institutions is just going to codify that terribleness um, and, and so on from there. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I don't believe that. I think people are wonderful. And over the years, I, I've refined that quite a bit to say something like this. I don't necessarily have a lot of faith in any individual person in almost any situation, but I have a fair bit of faith in collectives properly structured, right? In some critical mass of people who have the right incentives and resources uh, available, um, they're going to do a great job. It's sort of a, a version of wisdom of the crowds uh, argument, but it, it's more precise than that. Uh, Helene Landemore uh, uh, talks about this view in her philosophy of, of deliberative democracy too, um, in that you know the, the math will solve the problem. I, I like the math. The math is good, right? Let a hundred people guess how many jelly beans there are, and they'll probably do okay. But for things that aren't jelly beans in a jar, uh, you need a more elaborate process, and you need people who know what they're doing. And I just want to stress something. Earlier in the interview, you, you t talked about the CIR as though it was something Katie and I did. Katie and I absolutely <laughs> did not do it. Sure, all sure, we've done is study. No, no, no. It's okay. It happens all the time. Yeah. And it, it's kind of a shorthand. But it, there's an important point, which is there are real professionals out there who you know, dedicate years or their lives to figuring out the nuances of these processes. What Katie and I get to do is much easier. We get to look <laughs> at it and say mean things about it. Um, and sometimes nice things, right, if the data will permit it. But in a typical report, and you can, you can see our reports if you Google Citizens Initiative Review Research Project, you can see everything we've ever published or written. And the reports often, you know, go for maybe 70 pages of analysis and then there's like 45 recommendations for okay now if you don't want to screw it up as badly as you did last time here are some things you should do right so the the, the organization healthy democracy in oregon has felt this is an amazing symbiotic relationship and they'll they'll preach the virtues of this uh, practitioner researcher partnership and what they say to their, their colleagues in the professional field is look you know how to run the process the researchers need to stay out of that that's true but oh my gosh, you're going to be so much smarter if you are just transparent. Just let them see everything. Let, don't tell them to not hold back. And I like to think that Katie and I have influenced the CIR and improved the CIR over the years by having that distance, by getting our research grants from a separate funding source um, and then um, just having at it. Yeah, and to, to get into the book, to, to be fair, you guys do, the book is written very differently in that you draw into the individual people. I, I even describe them uh, as protagonists in uh, the way that you guys uh, walk through the book, beginning with Marion Sharp, uh, Tyrone Reitman, Elliot Shuford, Ned Crosby, and others, that you guys incorporate the individual people, what they were thinking, how they were doing, and it, it becomes very much a history of the process of how it developed for those who, who look to read the book. Yeah, before we had a publisher, we worked with a guy, Stuart Horowitz, who is a professional editor who 
mostly does fiction, right? We were very much trying to create a sort of interlocked narrative arc. So I'm, I'm glad, Justin, you read it that way, because that is part of the reason it took so long to write. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I also hope it helps people both understand how it became institutionalized and also how the process works. You know, I, Deliberative democracy asks people to engage in politics in a way that they are not used to, that they don't have much experience with, and hopefully by telling it through the perspective of people who've lived through it, it becomes a little bit more personable and, and tangible, and you can kind of envision yourself in one of those roles, and that's, you know, we, wrote, we also wrote it for a wider audience than just academics, um, and part of that purpose was we want practitioners to read it and see themselves and tie and Elliot and understand their potential for change, or, or Ned Crosby. We want them to see themselves as Marion and Anne and recognize that, you know, even if they don't have direct experience in this, they can go and learn and do good work with fellow citizens and they can find commonality and they can, you know, continue that work after they leave. Um, the hope is that this kind of big, unwieldy idea becomes something that you can kind of hang your hat on and understand where you where you might fit into it so that, you know, I, I, one of my big focuses is how do we empower the public? How do we really give them the tools and the systems and the opportunities that they need to thrive and do the hard work of democracy? Um, and hopefully this the book can help people understand what's their niche? How do I, how do I find that avenue to create real change because we all kind of have that potential in us if we find the right partners if we utilize the right resources if we ask the right questions you know I, I believe very deeply that we really can make pretty dramatic changes um and hopefully the book tells the story of the ways that a few people made one of those big changes so let me drop in an example that hasn't come up i i, I did allude to the fact that massachusetts has a law they've been considering to adopt this process with funding uh, and in Oregon, I, I mentioned in passing that a couple grad students read a book I wrote in 2000 and said, oh, maybe we should do that. And then they met Ned Crosby, who was actively working on this idea. And that is the heart of the book. But late in the book, you meet this guy, Sam Feigenbaum in Massachusetts, who's just a student. You know, I, I think he was at Brown. Is that right, Katie? Um, I don't know now. <laughs> well, in any case, he writes a senior thesis on deliberative democracy, right? And he reads all this stuff, and then he gets to be a legislative aide, and he, uh, his legislator is like, okay, well, you know, we're going to have fun, we're going to do cool things, and, and uh, is there anything you're passionate about? And Sam says, I don't know, there's this thing in Oregon that's pretty cool. And so it was just this kid fresh out of college talking to, you know, Representative Hecht obviously was a good representative, right? It's like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Let's learn more about that. And then they, you know, did an event at Harvard and, it, you know, and it goes from there. But that is so common in these democratic reforms is there's these really interesting moments where people just meet each other and inspire each other. And maybe they've read something. Maybe they didn't have any idea that this literature exists, right? But there's... Now, increasingly, they are finding the scholarship, right? And so part of what I like about that story is it's great if you're just, you know, a kid in college, you're like, I could make a difference. But it's also great if you're an academic because, you know, people joke about how, oh, you know, you're lucky if your article gets cited three times, right? And maybe that means six people read it. If that is your life experience in academia, I do feel very sorry for you because there are opportunities to do research that has much greater relevance. Um, and Katie and I are blessed in that we're studying things that people are excited about and people do want to read. So yeah, we write a bunch of articles and, you know, take care of the whole tenure business, that kind of stuff. 
but we wrote this book and we write some other things that we write reports and op-eds and so on just to reach that larger audience who might be curious to know if that research has relevance to their own lives and their ideas for improving democracy again that leaves us feeling kind of hopeful not just because you know academia will save the day but because properly structured academia has a role to play in kind of intellectual history history of ideas but also in political history and the, the, the way institutions change yeah, it, you mentioned about people not reading the articles uh that that's exactly why occasionally I'll actually send out an email to academics if I read their journal article and say, hey, that was a really good article. And it's amazing because I think I'm probably the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, in all seriousness, I think the book does a good job of being very faithful to the core idea, which is that individual people can make a difference in the and that individual people's opinions, ideas matter in the way that you structure the book in terms of walking through each individual person, emphasizing them and their humanity within the situation. I think that if you would have uh, approached it as a much more structured academic uh, book without a narrative arc, it would have taken away from that. So I, I think that was very well done. The, well, credit, um, credit to Katie for the interviews that, that got us those rich stories of people in the book. Um, but there's also a little bit of luck. Uh, you know, Justin, I'm sure you've watched a, a documentary on Netflix. I, I feel this way about Super Size Me, where you think no one would be watching this movie. No distributor would have picked it up had it not been for what happened, right? If the guy doesn't get horribly sick or if, you know, the, 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 the events don't happen exactly this way right? Um, we wouldn't be watching this documentary. Well, it, when Katie starts digging into uh, these two, uh, the, the CIR panelists, she finds that one had just previously gone to a deliberative event by an organization America Speaks that fortunately was defunct because we weren't going to give it a lot of love because the citizen had a really bad experience. She felt like it was a waste of time. Um, she was frustrated, right? It, it discouraged her. And so what a great, you know, way to set up the story, right? Is now the CIR gives her a golden ticket and says, you're going to be in this amazing deliberation. And she's like, I don't know. I've seen this kind of thing before. So as a reader, you're like, uh-oh, right? Uh, she's not excited. That's just lucky. I mean, that's, it, it's, <laughs> you know, and luck is the residue of careful planning, right? Katie had an interview schedule. She had to ask the right questions, dig in to get that story. But yeah, well, I remember when Katie told me, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. I was like, oh, that's like chapter one, baby. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Skepticism. Put the skeptic right in the book. That, that's something I'd like to ask, actually. Um, if I remember right, that was Marion Sharp who had mm -hmm. that experience. Yes. Now, it's interesting because she was on the first, um, the very first one that voted nine to five to get rid of the, um, to vote down the mandatory minimum uh, proposal. I, I think it was it? 21 to three. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. Okay, 21 to 3. Okay, it was very high. Yeah. But they ended up, but the voters ended up passing it. So it, demonstrating that either, well, you guys theorized based on your research that not enough people read it to be able to shift their opinion. My question is, is that why did she have such a different experience when at the end of the day, the results, like the, the entire activity seemed to be so obvious to vote against it? but then the voters ended up voting for it anyway. It seems to be the same type of 
result in the end? I think that one of the differences of the CIR, and this is really in part credit to John, who thought it would be a great idea to link these two things, the initiatives and deliberative democracy and citizen stories, um, is that even if it didn't ultimately impact that vote, it had a concrete connection to decision making. Um, you know, I think that there's... <laughs> There's a trend in deliberative democracy to talk about deliberative systems, and it really focuses on how we can implement deliberation across our public sphere institutions. So what does a deliberative media look like? What do deliberative organizations look like? What does it look like in your community and everyday talk? And then there are also these formal institutions. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the formal institutions at least up until this point, kind of hadn't been super connected to actual decision making. You know, they'd make a recommendation and it'd just go out into the ether and it wasn't quite clear who it was truffluence would happen. I think the CIR has a pretty simple linear connection to decision makers. You know, the voters are the decision makers, so we're trying to give them the information that they need. I think just even that simple we know what's going to be happening with the results of this. And even if people don't ultimately agree with us, we're at least in the conversation in a meaningful way. And I think particularly when we're talking about these formal institutions, finding those really concrete connections that your efforts will pay off in this specific way is important. You know, I like to say that bad engagement is worse than no engagement. You never want to put on a process. You never want to invite people to an event if you don't know what you're going to do with their work. They spend time, they spend energy, they spend their resources, and they give that to you. Um, you know, sometimes they get some resources or payment back, but often people are doing it because they want to help their community. So we always have to be, and practitioners really have to be mindful and thoughtful of um, not wasting their time, of, of letting them know, here's, here's how the information is going to be used, here's your potential impact. It doesn't mean that you're always going to get to make the decision at the end of the day, but there at least was a much more concrete connection to the decision through the CIR than there are through some other deliberative processes. And there's, a, there's another way of looking at impact, which is not whether you change the outcome of the election, but whether you influence voters, mm -hmm. right? So time and time again, we run these survey experiments where we expose people to different parts of the CIR, we change the order in which we do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, all those interesting variations, which I imagined would make tons of articles about subtle, mm -hmm. there's one sort of simple way of describing the impact of the CIR that despite all of our machinations seems to hold up pretty well, which is roughly speaking, when it's in the official voters guide, maybe half the voters come to discover it, right? They know that the CIR, oh, they're aware of the CIR. So if you're aware of that the Citizens Initiative Review has happened on that issue, there's about two thirds uh, chance that you read it, okay? So now we're at two thirds of one half of the electorate. Well, now, if you read it, there's maybe a 50-50 chance that it, it made a difference for you, right? One way or the other. So now we're, we're down to about one sixth of the electorate that there's a decent chance it might change their mind. Um, well, does that sound like a lot? It's not necessarily going to change the outcome of an election when something's, you know, at a popularity of about 70% going into the election, right? It's not going to cut it. But a lot of the time it will. And, you know, if I was a, a professional consultant and uh, you said, well, how should we spend our money? Uh, I said, well, I don't know. You know, there's direct mail, there's door knocking. And you said, well, I know this thing that will influence up to maybe one in every six voters, you know, maybe on a bad day, one in 10, I would say, wow, 
that's, that's incredible. How much does that cost? You know, well, it's free. We just have to show up. I'd, I'd be like, uh, let's start doing fo deliberative focus groups now. That's the best thing we can buy, right? Let's, let's win that thing um, because I could spend $5 million and, and not get a quarter of that impact. And I think that's why people freak out a little bit as professional campaign uh, consultants about the CIR. And our Oregon, it's a funny story. Uh, we alluded to it earlier, this progressive organization. Apparently, since we finished the book, they've, they've warmed up more to the CIR, which I'm happy to hear. Um, but the people who ran that organization uh, were themselves political consultants. Uh, their constituency loved the CIR. We, we wanted to write an article about who loves deliberation. And the short answer was, well, kind of everybody. So, <laughs> good night. You know, that's right. one of those old two-page articles <laughs> in the Psychology Journal, right, from 1950. Um, so, yeah, that's not published. But um, it's in a report somewhere. Uh, but anyway, the, the point is that it was the leadership of the organization that was so concerned because they felt they were losing control. Right? If you're making political uh, operatives feel like they're losing control of the electoral process, you're probably doing something right. And so that's kind of how the CIR is in terms of impact. I, I would just say it's incredibly impactful, but that's not always going to change the outcome of an election. That said, there have been a lot of close votes where the CIR is in the mix, and our, our survey experiments suggest it was tilting people in the direction of a victory or defeat that was very close. In those cases, it probably did make the difference. Again, if it's in the official voters guide, a lot of the pilot tests and so on, those aren't, those don't distribute the same way, right? They're just maybe mentioned in the media and so on. That's the key to the CIR. Uh, and people say, you know, what's the role of the media in this? And my answer is, hmm, none. Uh, because they don't care. And maybe they do a news story, maybe. Uh, no, it's got to be in that official media, right? The voter guide that goes to every voter. And in a state like Oregon, where they're getting a ballot in the mail, and they're getting the guide in the mail. That's a great combination in terms of messaging, right? Because you know, people are putting those in the same broken green plastic crate that they got at, you know, the dollar store and waiting until the, they vote. Now that we're talking about mail-in elections for everyone, it just couldn't be more relevant. Yeah, it, of course, it when we talk about the official voters guide, it, it really depends on the institutions for that exact state. Having mail-in voting is going to be very different than having um, in-person voting. I don't think Indiana where I live has an official voters guide per se to be able to include. Of A lot course, of states don't. That's right. Yeah. And, and to be honest, if they sent it out, I think it'd be different than somebody who's doing voting by the mail, because if you get the guide, with your ballot, I'm sure that it's very different. Of course, if you included a statement on the actual ballot itself, that would have an impact that might even be bigger. Um, with well, that, that was my original idea in By Popular Demand, which I, I published back in 2000, sure. the worst timed academic book possibly of that decade. I essentially argued in the year 2000, Bush v. Gore, that the solution to our democratic ills is to put more information on the ballots, make them a little more complex for voters. Um, <laughs> that's the solution. Uh, the irony, of course, is that the CIR, because I thought no one would read the details, right? They'd want some little sort of good housekeeping seal or a, a big thumbs down on the ballot put there by citizens, right, in these deliberative processes. Um, but having now studied the CIR for 10 years, the good news is, a lot of voters actually do want to read what would be behind such a seal, and they don't particularly care whether 20 citizens say yay or nay. Um, and to his credit, Jim Fishkin has been a critic of the CIR on this exact point, that he thinks the deliberation is fine, 
the voters uh, guide is fine, but he doesn't like the idea of 20 or 24 people having a vote tally because the sample is just ridiculously small and the, the response rate to the invitations is terrible. Um, so what can you make of that? Well, in the end, you have pretty good statements. And so that's where the CIR is heading. If you look at other states and other countries that are talking about implementing it, they're dropping the vote tally, but they're absolutely keeping that one-page statement because the evidence is pretty good that, again, people are actually willing to read it. What I did like about Oregon-specific CIR, the way that you described it, was that they kept it loose enough that they were able to evolve and change as the process went. There's it concerns me when things are set too much in stone on something that is an institution. Juries, you guys parallel that very closely. The jury system has taken hundreds of years to be able to evolve to where it's at. So to be able to say that overnight we're going to get this perfect would just seem crazy to me. So the Let me drop a de detail in there just to underscore your point for anyone listening who wants to have an impact. The smartest thing they did, the organizers of the CR, was to convince the legislature just to authorize a pilot. In a sense, all the legislature did was say, you know what, if you build it, we'll put it in the guide, but the rest is on you. Right? They barely lifted a finger, but that's all they asked for, and that eh, creaked the door open. Then we had to get money from the NSF to, to do this the study. I mean, there was no budget for anything. Then when it comes back around after the 2010 pilot, the legislature is super excited and they've got something right in front of them. They all saw it. They're like, that made perfect sense. I kind of like this. Still not ready to pay for it because we're still broke, but now let's make it a law. Let's set up a CIR commission, which will oversee. Da, 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 da. You wouldn't have gotten any of that if you had gone in all or nothing. So people who are thinking about reform, this piloting is super important, but if you can get the government on board for the test, so they're kind of interested to hear the results. There's a formal hearing and so on. That's a great one-two punch, I think, for getting this kind of reform implemented. I, I thought what was interesting in the book as you kind of progressed was that beyond the specific results of the impact, and obviously everybody involved in deliberative democracy, um, you guys even note in the book, there was a quote I pulled out regarding that, uh, the goal behind many deliberative experiments is uh, system, systemic political change. But I, I think what's interesting is that you focus a lot on the impact of civic participation. Uh, you reference Robert Putnam's work in terms of bowling alone, in terms of the way that um, people trying to, to draw them back into politics and become more involved. I I guess the question that I've got for you is, um, is, is this civic purpose for deliberative democracy, is it more important than the specific political outcomes that it produces? I don't know that I could kind of separate those two things. I think that the civic purpose is intimately tied to the outcomes, you know, like we talked about with why Marion might have been more satisfied with the CIR is because she could see the results of her work. And I don't think that every deliberative process is going to need to be directly involved in the decision-making stage. You know, I think that there's a role for citizens to play in policy development and understanding their community, you know, just kind of talking with one another can change your intent and really powerful or change your perspective in really powerful ways. Um, so I think that they go hand in hand, but I do think 
you know, my, one of my favorite things about deliberation is its transformative potential for people. At the end of every CIR, they do this circle where they sit around and they say, what has this experience meant to you? And to hear people talk about their own transformations, it's always moving. I always tear up. You know, they, a lot of people talk about not knowing that they had that potential, that they could learn this stuff, that they could talk to people who were different from themselves, that they could affect decisions, you know, that they had power, you know, and I think one of my big concerns is that the more people feel disconnected from power, the more alienated people feel, the more likely they are to just check out of the political system in general. If they don't see a role for themselves, then it's logical for them to say, this isn't worth my time. You know, I think one of the best things deliberation can do as it gets implemented in a bunch of different contexts is to show people that they can have power. Again, I'm, I'm a big proponent of systemic change and kind of finding opportunities for citizens, but it's, it's really beautiful and amazing. You know, I work with the Center for Public Deliberation at Colorado State, and we are, you know, a city of about 150,000 in Fort Collins, and our director, Martine Carcasson, started it in 2007. And so we've had, you know, over a decade now of deliberation being institutionalized in large and small ways across our community. And it's changed the way that our government officials interact with the public. They expect robust public engagement. I kind of hear them talking about trusting community members in a way that I don't necessarily hear from other politicians and elected leaders because they have a lot more experience interacting with them and learning from them and, and integrating them into decision-making processes. So for me, it really goes hand in hand. People begin to understand their role in the political process. They begin to see themselves as important, as vital, as, as really if we want to do democracy in the right way, if we want to make the best decisions, then we have have to be involved. And then that kind of gives them more opportunities for involvement. It, it illustrates the, um, the good things that can come when we bring citizens into politics in really meaningful and, and um, well-structured ways. Um, and and it, it has just kind of all sorts of benefits. People begin to trust one another more. They become more likely to talk with their neighbor. They become more likely to join local organizations, you know. So all of those things together really can transform our democracy, can transform our communities if we begin to understand ourselves as key players. You know, I think we often feel like, I don't really have a role outside of voting. And in reality, for this system of public governance to work, we have to find those ways of interacting with it um, in ways that aren't necessarily too onerous, in ways that are connected to our lived experiences, in ways that are kind of integrated into our own lives. Um, and so the proliferation of deliberative processes, large and small across contexts, can really, it can change the decisions that get made, but it really can shape communities in ways that are, are really beautiful. So Katie's underselling a little bit that this is really the focus of, of, of her element of this research, which is on that impact. So in her dissertation, she proposed, hey, John, you know, I think the CIR might actually change people's more fundamental civic attitudes, to which I replied, well, probably not, but, you know, can't hurt to ask a few more survey questions. I knew enough about surveys to know people will just keep answering. Shocked <laughs> how long these things can get. And you, they're just still going. So for, sure, Katie, whatever, you know, come up with some measures and we'll do this. Well, here's the short version of what we found in that first study was, that if you're simply aware that the state of Oregon has created the CIR, it actually bolsters your sense of external efficacy or your perception that the system is responsive. Imagine if your state government said, you know what, 
people. We're going to let you deliberate and give each other a voting guide and let yourselves deliberate the way we get to in committees, right? Go for it. Well, that boosts that attitude, right? And then if you actually read the CIR statement, we get a change in your internal efficacy, your sense of political self-confidence, like, hey, I understand this, right? I can do this. I, I know how to vote on this issue. When we got those results, I was like, well, Katie, that's amazing. It's like my jury study, right? You know, you've got this longitudinal data, super compelling. We send it to a journal we're real excited about, and the journal says, yeah, here's some reviews, but uh, as editor, I got to tell you, I just don't think that happened. You know, you can revise it, but, you know, I'm not persuaded. So what do we do? We, we replicate it. And Katie's like, look, 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 we got the same results. And they're like, good for you. <laughs> so it's published somewhere else. Um, but it's amazing the resistance, right, to this idea. Like, oh, that doesn't happen. That couldn't happen. You know, No, you know what? People can change their attitudes in response to changing actual circumstances, right? Either the experience of reading or just knowing that there's this thing I can read now. That can have an impact. And thanks to Katie's work, and it, it started with more, you know, frustrated work about alienation, how alienated everyone is. The article that, you know, has this in it is, is more hopeful, right? It's like, well, th there is actually an antidote to some of these kinds of alienation, and here it is. Well, I, I think you can also describe the transformation of civic participation can be the systemic change itself. Mm -hmm. So if you think of it that way, that can be a very, very positive impact uh, from that direction. I think that's really almost the thesis behind um, Robert Putnam's work oftentimes is the idea that the civic participation itself is transformative um, within, within society. It completely changes things. And there's a whole cadre of people writing on that same topic. But I think, I, I think that does make sense. I, I want to ask you in terms of um, as we kind of move towards wrapping it up. Now, there's a lot of places that have instituted deliberative democracy around the world. Uh, David uh, Von Roybrock, did I even pronounce that right? Uh, wrote Against Elections. Um, you guys refer to him. He talks a lot about sortition, which involves direct democracy in places like Ireland and Iceland uh, were his big examples that I remember. And then of course, you guys mentioned the case in um, British Columbia within Canada. How far do you guys see deliberative democracy moving towards people having an impact? What other ways do you see this being included within, uh, within political systems? I'll, I'll let John talk a little bit more about sortition in a second because he's into sortition. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, it really goes back to that deliberative systems. Almost all of our systems can be transformed to be a little bit more deliberative. One of the things that attracts me to deliberation as a theory and deliberative democracy as a theory is it really is pragmatic. It really, it doesn't stop at the critique. It uses the critique as a jumping off point to figure out, all right, if these are the things that are wrong, then how do we improve them? Um, so a lot of the work that I'm doing right now in, at my local center is figuring out, all right, how do we bring people into policy development? So right now we're having community guides host conversations with people, with members of their own communities about the issues they're facing related to housing and health. Um, we're going to deliver that to our city planners who are going to use it to develop policies. And then we're going to bring it back to the community to talk about all right, now that these policies are on the table, which ones are most important? Which ones need to be tweaked to actually deal with the lived experiences that we were talking about earlier? So I think that there's tons of places we could bring in more deliberation. You know, we could structure 
media systems that are more deliberative, less based in advertising, more based in public funding, more based in conversations with one another. Um, we do a lot of work bringing deliberation into the school system, you know, giving students these tools at a much earlier age to talk about tough issues and to, to bring their own experiences into learning and to understanding public policy, to make those connections between what they're learning and public policy in their own life. Um, I'm, you know, curious, I think, I'm curious, do you guys do anything within private enterprise in terms of uh, larger institutions like corporations or even um, or even businesses that might be relatively small but have um, enough workers to make sense to be able to have uh, deliberations within the employees? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, John, you might have um, insight into this too. My experience is that we're kind of getting requested to do that more and more, which has kind of been surprising to me. We've really kind of my center recently has had a number of businesses reach out to us and ask us for help you know we've done um workshops within our own institutions where we kind of talk through what are our values and why are we having conflicts in this place and how can we make collective decisions that are more efficient and better for our community um the director of my program recently ran um a public forum with our local power authority um, to figure out how quickly can we move to renewable energy. You know, it's a private enterprise, but at the end of the day, they have a huge impact on um, um, climate sustainability in our community. So they asked us to help get the public to weigh in on, you know, how quickly do we increase costs with the goal of driving down um, carbon outputs. So I think that there's a lot of places for businesses and corporations to incorporate incorporate this work and and hopefully we'll see that more um, but I've been kind of pleasantly surprised recently with some of the requests that we've been getting from you know private industry it's not necessarily where I want to put all my time and effort but I think that it's absolutely an opportunity particularly for students who are getting trained in deliberative methods you know it's a great outlet for them to go out and work in the business world and and we actually we train students in facilitation and lots of businesses want those students who can help team members talk across difference who can be a liaison with the wider community and bring their voices in so the membership of the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation includes a lot of people who hang up a shingle as a professional facilitator, process designer, and so on. They get there real fast. They notice, oh, well, there's only so many Oregon Citizens Initiative reviews floating around out there for me to attach to. Uh, uh, I might have corporate clients. And I do think this is a direction the work is going to go. I've, I've been around long enough that uh, I've seen a real transformation. So back in the 90s, we talked about workplace democracy in kind of an angry sort of you know, workers should be empowered kind of way, right? It, I think it's totally valid, right? Even Robert Dahl, a sort of classic democratic theorist towards the end of his career, uh, started emphasizing more uh, this workplace democracy uh, as a concept that democracy should be shot through the whole society if you want to sustain a democratic system. Great. Okay, good. But I just had a, a student in a master's program take my deliberation seminar, and he's working with a couple faculty in the law school and labor and employment relations to do an article that makes this argument. Um, let's say you're completely focused on private bottom line. You want more return on your investment in this business. It may be a shrewd business practice to incorporate genuine, empowered deliberation within your organization. That is, your organization may make better decisions on everything from management structure on down to uh, logistics and assembly processes if you give up some power. 
uh, and, and use these processes. So the kinds of students that get trained here at Penn State and the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, the Nevins Fellows, get the kinds of skills that Katie is describing in a more hands-on way at Colorado State. They learn it. In our case, we send them off to go work with different organizations. But in both cases, these students may very well find themselves doing that. Maybe they get hired by you know Apple just to be whatever they are, a, a public relations assistant or a coder. And then they say, you know, actually, I do know about this deliberation thing, and I can't help noticing we keep making the same kinds of mistakes. We had the information we needed, but it wasn't, you know, present. Anyway, you get the point. The sortition idea is, is more radical than that. It, it sure. says, okay, let's go back to public life. And the word sortition is, is a fancy word. Uh, some people prefer civic lottery. It's when you get randomly selected to have a, a job. Uh, in the public sector, so, such as I'm on the CIR uh, panel this week, or I'm on a jury this week, or whatever. Um, sortition bodies can be more like legislative bodies, though, and in Belgium is the most radical experiment where they set up a body that is ongoing, right? This randomly selected body has a more direct influence on what we would think of as sort of a state legislature. Um, I, I'm a big advocate of sortition because I, I think it's an obvious democratic tool to have in the toolkit, but it, it tends to just sit in the toolkit. You know, we get it out whenever we need a jury. Well, even then, the, the jury is in decline in countries that have it as a matter of, of practical use. So we're moving away from sortition when, in fact, the, the evidence just keeps piling up that it actually does really good. It does a good job at making good decisions, but it also does a good job at, at building public legitimacy because it's not that easily captured. So it's something we'll see, I think, more and more of if democratic reform keeps moving forward because it's very participatory, it's very deliberative, um, and it reduces the kind of alienation that concerns people like Katie who look at the politics and say, uh, people are gonna be disengaged until they feel they have a real voice. Even though you're not in that random sample, you might identify with the school bus driver who has had to go on sabbatical from that job for a couple of years because now they're surfing in Congress, right? Uh, that's kind of exciting in a way that we can't identify with all these professional lawyers and you know millionaires who, who are disproportionately representing us. Okay. Well, to kind of wrap things up real quick, um, I wanted to read out, um, I want to actually do two quotes from your book. The first one is, is a little bit negative, but I think it gets at the point that modern political systems ask little more from their citizens than an occasional marked ballot. And I think that that's really important that gets at the heart of your book uh, to aspire for more than that. So to end it on a positive note, I wanted to end with a quote that says, uh, Marion, who's referring to Marion Sharp, didn't just believe that citizens could reclaim democracy. She wanted to help make it happen. That's, that's the inspiration that she got from this. Um, regardless of how the, the specific CIR in terms of a policy and breaking it down in terms of, hey, I'm in support or I'm opposed, you definitely have to appreciate the uh, aspirations and the goals that are within the process, but also within your book. Um, you know, the, the title's aptly named um, Hope for Democracy. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Katie. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. 
I want to thank the team at Oxford University Press who make many copies of their recent publications available to me, including Hope for Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music in the introduction and the outro. You can find their songs on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my loving wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. I also write a blog where I review works of political science. Every week, I publish a new review and a new podcast, so please subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.